and welcome to tonight's edition of Resistance TV. This evening, we're going to be looking at the implications of the legal battle that was joined by Labour activists to force the Labour Party to treat its members fairly and show them some respect. But after securing several victories along the way, sadly, they fell at the final hurdle in the High Court last month. Although the hearing was in June, the judgment wasn't handed down until last week. And at a separate hearing on Monday, the activists were hit by a potentially ruinous legal bill after the judge agreed to the Labour Party's demand that the activists pay the party's legal costs. Furthermore, this judge has essentially ruled that the Labour Party can now abuse its members with impunity. Joining us to discuss the fallout from this case are socialist commentator and former Labour Party activist Amar Kazmi and councillor Afa Orhan, who was one of the claimants who successfully challenged her suspension, forcing the party to capitulate before the High Court hearing took place. We're having a few technical difficulties uh, in reaching uh, Ava this evening, though, so I'm hoping that we will be able to, to hear from her, but we'll see how we get on a little bit later on in the programme. But first, let me start the discussion tonight by asking you, Amar, to briefly explain the background to this case and provide a bit more detail about what the activists were trying to achieve. Thank you very much, Chris. Well, I think that was a very... Um... Uh, succinct opening. I don't really know if I need to necessarily go into too much of the uh, sort of general background. Of course, there were eight Labour activists. Um, you know, in the end, they bought a case against the party, essentially saying that they suffered uh, unfair disciplinary action. Um, that case has been actually going on now for well, it went on for a well over half a year. It started um, in its sort of embryonic stage in about December last year. Um, and since that time, the claimants managed to achieve, you know, a number of substantial victories. And, you know, obviously it was a party, as you say, that disappointingly won that sort of last leg of the process. So um, perhaps it would just be helpful for me to explain what some of the arguments were, what was achieved, what was lost. Uh, so the claimants had set out essentially to achieve three uh outcomes. They wanted firstly to ensure that the party adhered to the principles of natural justice and procedural fairness uh, in the way that their cases uh, were handled. That's a requirement in the Labour Party rulebook. So it was essentially a breach of contract claim because the Labour Party is an unincorporated association. What that means is that all of the uh, party members are sort of bound together by contract and it's the rulebook that binds them all together. Uh, secondly, they wanted the party to respond to the findings of unfairness contained in last year's EHRC report on anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, because whilst we heard a lot about uh, the EHRC's findings uh, with respect to complainants, as in the people who bring complaints against other people, the EHRC report did actually contain a number of findings uh, about respondents, the people who have to answer the allegations that are made against them. And the EHRC found that actually it wasn't just complainants who were subject to uh, different unfairnesses. It was actually also respondents as well. So they wanted the party to comply with what the, what the EHRC had uh, said. And thirdly, they wanted the party to stop giving the impression that uh, party members are under stricter confidentiality requirements than they actually are. So um, that was essentially the three outcomes they were looking for. Now, in terms of the substance, um, since 2018 and until recently, the party had been applying uh, an unpublished secret anti-Semitism code of conduct to, dis to uh, disciplinary cases. And the claimant said, well, look, 
you know, if Labour members are accused of misconduct, then, you know, surely it's right that they should know what criteria apply to them. There shouldn't be secret codes of conduct that they don't know about to which they are being, you know, held accountable. Um, but unfortunately, the court agreed with the party's view that the claimants only needed to know, quote, the gist of uh, the material that was being used against them. Um, the claimants also said, well, you know, the party is continuing to use disciplinary processes that the EHRC found to be unfair. They found them to be unfair at the end of October last year. So we're now approaching about nine months since Keir Starmer went on national TV. And I think we all saw those images of him uh, making very clear promises to not just party members, but the country as a whole, that he accepted the EHRC report and um, that he would be overseeing very swift changes. That hasn't happened. Uh, nevertheless, the court basically accepted the party's arguments that the EHRC apparently didn't find that Labour's processes were fundamentally unfair. Now, on that particular point, I think that really needs to be exposed. You know, we have the party saying one thing in public, that they accept the report in Sir Keir Starmer's words, in full and without qualification. Uh, and in court, they're saying another thing entirely. Now, let's bear in mind, you know, these are the same processes and rules being used now that were used under Jeremy Corbyn, uh, which supposedly resulted in unlawful indirect discrimination and harassment, according to the EHRC. But under Starmer, they're now magically fit for purpose. Um, and lastly, the claimant said, you know, that the party's confidentiality requirements caused them real harm. They felt unable, uh, or some of them felt unable to tell people that they were under investigation, unable to respond to public accusations against them, uh, and so on. But the again, the court agreed with the party that there hadn't been any unfairness in that respect, and that um, uh, even if there had been unfairness, the court wouldn't have intervened because it didn't want to micromanage a political party, which in my view really says it all. You know, I think sadly, there was uh, bad luck when it came to the judge who seemed to be following a policy of judicial restraint or judicial hesitance, one might call it. You know, so with a different judge, with a different judicial philosophy, perhaps the judge uh, that was in your case, Chris, uh, you know, if, if, if they had that judge, then it might well have gone the other way. So that's basically what happened. Those were the defeats. In terms of the achievements, well, um, this High Court judgment, as I said right at the beginning, is only the sort of the last leg of the process. So, you know, one thing that the claimants can take credit for is that as a direct result of this case, Labour finally published that um, anti-Semitism code of conduct that I mentioned um, basically at the end of March this year. And that can now be found in a brand new complaints handling handbook, which actually goes you know, far more extensively than uh, that code of conduct. And it also outlines sort of issues in respect of free speech that members can rely on. So that was a very big victory. Um, and astonishingly, actually, the party admitted in open court that it refused to previously publish that document, which was a Corbyn era document. As I say, it was from 2018. It was one of the things that came in under Jenny Formby's watch because it would have been politically incendiary. That was their reason for essentially saying that, well, party members, you can't see what standards are being used against you, because if we were to publish this, then that would cause us political problems. Um, and actually, I also saw a tweet in June, that was from the NEC member, uh, Mish uh, Rahman, one of the sort of uh, left-wing um, CLP uh, NEC members, saying that the NEC was in the middle of creating a new code of conduct specifically on um, confidentiality and privacy. And I think, again, that's highly likely to have been a 
uh, direct response to the claimant's arguments on confidentiality. And on that point, this case has clarified that members uh, who are subject to disciplinary action are entitled to speak about their cases. You know, you will you will have received, uh, Chris, a notice of investigation. I received a notice of investigation in 2016. Anyone who's been subject to the party's McCarthyite processes has had one of these letters. And uh, you'll know that it comes with, you know, quite threatening language, in, in my view, about confidentiality. It makes it appear as if you're gagged, that you can't tell people what's happening with you. And that essentially, if you if you were to say anything about what's happening in your case, then that could result in further disciplinary action taken against you. But the party has essentially conceded that's not the case. You know, you can tell people about what's happening to you. You can divulge any information that relates to you personally, because that's your own personal data. And it's shocking, actually, that it, it took a literal trial in the high court for that to have been clarified and you know but it still hasn't been widely reported it's not like the party has gone out and told people this is what's happening but you know perhaps we'll see that in this code of conduct but the biggest victory of all chris was that whilst there were originally 13 potential claimants the party uh, preemptively backed down by reinstating five of them without any preconditions and that was before they even reached court so you know, there were a lot of positive results that came from this claim, but obviously, despite those victories, um, you know, there was still this uh, last leg of the process that went bad for the claimants and has resulted in this cost order. And I think it's extremely clear now that actually the Labour Party has become a law unto itself. It can basically do whatever it wants. And, you know, but e even so, I think it was very important to bring this case. And I think it's it's clarified a lot of issues and it's, it's highlighted in explicit detail uh, sort of the broken nature of the Labour Party. Oh, I can't hear you, Chris. Not sure why. I think it's because I muted myself. Yeah, oh. this is a very bad <laughs> faux pas. I'm supposed to be hosting things. Yeah. No, I was saying um, you've sort of answered, I think, the, the next question I was going to put to you. But just before I do that, I think one of the significant achievements is definitely the confidentiality point that you made, because certainly when I was suspended and indeed on advice from my own lawyers uh, I whilst I was being introduced uh, in in the media being briefed against by the Labour Party's uh, bureaucrats and indeed being attacked by the vast majority of the parliamentary Labour Party I was under uh, these strictures whereby I wasn't able to defend myself and indeed when I was reinstated and John McDonnell uh, suggested after there was a move by over 100 MPs and 50 odd members of the House of Lords to withdraw the whip from me for a year. Our motion was going to go to the next Parliamentary Labour Party meeting. Um, but that was then preempted because Jenny Formby decided to re-suspend me, which was the point of the of the High Court uh, hearing. But John John's suggestion was that I should uh, apologise again and, and again and uh, uh, go and see the Board of Deputies and the Jewish uh, Leadership Council and offer to meet any uh, MPs that were hurt or distressed by my comments, which Clearly, they weren't really hurt or distressed by them. It was it was all a ruse. But these people were uh, egregious in their uh, attacks against me, and I was unable to defend myself. And I said to John that, look, I'm not going to apologise. You, you know, you really need to go and to the media and defend me. But unfortunately, John wasn't prepared to do that, nor was any other member of the Socialist Campaign Group to speak up publicly. But, but the point I was just going to make, though, uh, uh, actually, Amar, I think you've sort of slightly answered it, but I think it's just worth putting it again, if I, if I may, because there's been a, only a little bit, it's not been huge, but there have been a few comments, uh, albeit on social media, critical comments, saying that, 
you know, as a, as political activists, we shouldn't be seeking a remedy in the uh, uh, in the courts. You know, the establishment's courts. Uh, that isn't the right way to go. It was, uh, you know, a waste of time. What would your response be to that? Do you think? I mean, obviously, you've sort of answered that, really. But I mean, just to sort of directly deal with that that criticism head on, what would be your response? Well, of course, as we know, it wasn't a waste of time. There were numerous victories that came from it. But I think that at the end of the day, uh, the courts are the last recourse. I think, you know, if you can't hold the party to account and the party's procedures, the party's bureaucrats uh, to account internally, then what are the recourse do you have? I mean, essentially, they're saying that you shouldn't be able to have any recourse. You should just be able to deal with it politically. But that's simply not the case. You can only really do that if a party is truly democratic and accountable. And if the Labour Party were truly democratic and accountable, then of course we would be saying to party members that you should absolutely exhaust all of the processes available to you and all of the appeals and options there. But that isn't how the party works. The party's procedures are very arbitrary, very unfair. And, um, you know, again, as I say, there were numerous, I think, uh, common sense findings in the EHRC report last year, despite all the criticisms that I have made of it, and there were many, but I think there were numerous common sense findings that even they couldn't ignore of unfairnesses against respondents. So the party's processes are endemically uh, sort of broken. And so where else can you turn? Now, some people say, well, you know, as I say, it's just a political matter. It shouldn't be intervened by the courts. But I think that's really looking at it in the wrong way. You know, the sort of system that we have in the UK means that there are essentially two major political parties. If you want to be involved in sort of, you know, right-wing politics in the UK, if you want to exercise your democratic rights, you basically have to be a member of the Conservative Party. You have to go through it. You have to be associated with it. Um, Of course, there are other avenues, but then you'll be sort of in the minority. And it's the exact same on the left. If you want to be sort of active on the mainstream left of British politics, then you kind of have to be in the Labour Party or associated with it or have some relationship to it. Um, And so surely that means that one's membership of those political parties ought to be sacrosanct, ought to be protected. You should only really be able to be excluded from those uh, organisations because of some very, very serious violation. Otherwise, you're essentially attacking people's democratic and political rights. That's what it is. It's not just a case of... um, which is the way that the court would see it, that these are sort of just membership clubs, the same as sort of a bowling club or a golf club. And, you know, you can be a member of it if you if you pay your dues and whatever. Uh, and But if the members in that sort of organisation or the leadership of that organisation wants to throw you out, they should feel free to do so. That's not the same uh, as a political party, I'm afraid. It's not the same, particularly, mm-hmm. as I say, because of the first-past-the-post system and because we have two dominant parties. So actually, one's membership, if they want to have it, of the Conservative Party or the Labour Party, really ought to be seen as sort of a democratic right in that way. And not just necessarily because of those two parties. If there were two other dominant parties, the same argument would be made. And the only way that we would really be able to get away from that is if we reformed the entire political system and we ensured that actually there were adequate spaces for minority voices to be involved in politics. But that's not how our political system works. So if that's not how our political system works, then of course people should be able to resort to uh, other measures to ensure that their party membership, uh, if they want it, is secured and that they're treated fairly. So I don't accept that criticism um, Mm. even one bit, I'm afraid. 
Well, listen, let me let me bring in Afa now. Let's hope we've uh, got managed to sort out the technical difficulties with the audio and, and video. We can see Afa now. I hope uh, she can hear me okay. Afa, you are obviously one of the, the claimants who uh, successfully challenged the party and were reinstated. But I wondered if you could perhaps just tell the viewers about your suspension and, and basically the impact that it had on you personally because i know a lot of people have it's had a you know profound impact on on their uh, on their on their physical health and on their mental health and i just wondered how it how it impacted on you uh, yeah thank you chris um thank you everyone um for inviting me to the program um and giving me this opportunity to speak up because uh, actually since my suspension in in march 2019 and and following uh, an email letter that I received from the Labour Party after a huge amount of damage was done to my name, my reputation and my standing within my community, my home, my family and into in the wider community internationally because um, I was well known and and so it it uh, following that uh, a day later or two days later i received this email from the labor party um, um clarifying um that um i wasn't able to speak and clarifying um w w that i hadn't been suspended so um i think i think and this is uh, the first opportunity or the second opportunity rather the first the first one was the opportunity to have my case presented to the preliminary of the court action uh, and the second opportunity is this to um to to say a few words about um the fact that i was gagged i felt i was gagged and i couldn't speak up at the time because of this as i said letter that came to me a couple of days later after councillor chalishkan had made a number of falsehoods in the national and local media about the fact that i had been suspended which in fact was untrue because i hadn't been suspended um and and actually did a lot of damage and and caused me a lot of pain and stress for over two years. You were um, under investigation, I think. Is that right, Aoife? They, they put you under uh, formal investigation. Was the, that letter, the letter is really, um, the letter that came from the Labour Party was rather strange. The first letter that came on the 29th of March, which I said um, a few days after Councillor Chalishkan, the leader of Enfield Council, made those falsehoods in the national and local papers about me, was um, what said this actually, Chris. And if you wouldn't mind, I'll read. I'll read. Yeah, you of course. The first letter from the Labour Party, as I said, issued on the 29th of March 2019, said, we are currently at the investigatory stage of the disputes process and at no time during an investigation does the Labour Party confer an assumption of guilt on any party. You are not currently administratively suspended. No restrictions have been placed on the rights associated with your membership at this time. And then, Chris, it goes on to say, the Labour Party's investigation process operates confidentially. That is vital to ensure fairness to you and the complainant. Um, I'm yet to, to, to hear who the complainant was. And mm. to protect the rights of all concerned under the Data Protection Act 2018. I must therefore, and this is the, this is the line, this is a crucial line 
that convinced me I couldn't say anything in the public domain and I couldn't dispute what Councillor Chalishkan had said about me. I must therefore ask you to ensure that you keep all information and correspondence relating to this investigation private and that do not and that do not share it with third parties. Grammar is really bad. I've copied it direct. And that do oh. not share it with third parties or the media, including social media. So that was really, really strange situation to find myself in. Um, over 20 years as a councillor in the London Bar of Enfield, and it, like most people, historical data going back to over 40 years of campaigning and supporting the Labour Party. A parliamentary candidate twice uh, for the Labour Party, so they obviously think I'm good character. Mm put me as a parliamentary candidate or allowed me to go through the selection process as a parliamentary candidate. And yet, a single tweet I, I um, did on the 22nd of March um, 2019, a single tweet in my entire life um, was questioning um, the, the awarding of contract to Genie Energy and to, to drill for oil in the Golan Heights. Now, I'm an environmentalist, I, I, um, but, but I'm also a councillor. And councillors, by their very nature, are inquisitive animals. And we ask questions. That's what we train to do. So mm. I asked the question, horrific if this is true, and then sent it off to the big wide web but, um, and thought nothing of it. I of was course. asking in order to learn um, what, 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 what that was all about. I didn't name any names. I didn't question any political parties. I didn't question any political or non-political communities. Um, so I, I sent it off. And, um, and my tweet, actually, at my uh, site, my profile, says that I don't endorse anything, that I retweet, assuming that would protect me. Yeah, yeah. Actually, quite honestly, I was rather innocent... Eve, um, having um, built this really, I thought, solid reputation, a single mum protecting my name for my children's sake. And um, I thought that I, um, you know, I'm no ordinary, ordinary human being like every other listener, every other person in the Labour Party, um, you know, wanting to do the right thing and asking the right questions. And and if someone like me, and, I, I, and you know, um, that hasn't been... I was active in the 80s and 90s um, and, and earlier with a minor strike and and various other big campaigns, uh, very much an anti-apartheid uh, campaigner in my early days as a young woman, you know. Um, uh, and so, so uh, you know, what I felt was I did the right thing in my life, campaigned, mm. fought against the right battles. And, and yet... Um, you know, approaching, you know, 60 plus and, and, and I came across this thing in my life, which actually, Chris, has devastated me. Look, I'm still emotionally mm. raw from it. It completely that. devastated me and it knocked me back for six. And for two years, the Labour Party um, maintained a, a sh shroud of silence, despite the fact that it, um, they said they were investigating a single tweet. It took them over two years. And if it hadn't been for the legal fight, left legal fighting fund and, and those wonderful um, people who took my case on, I would still be sitting and waiting for mm. a judgment from the Labour Party. Yeah.
No, it's, it's shocking. It's, it's truly shocking. Thank you for telling us your your story, Afer. It's uh, I know it's difficult sometimes to speak about these things. I know I've been personally affected. Obviously, you know, gone through a similar process to yourself. And uh, and when you spent such a long time devoting your spare time, your energies to the Labour Party, it kind of feels part of the family. And it feels like to me anyway. It felt like a bereavement. I mean, the only thing that I can compare it to is when my wife died. Frankly, I know it might sound a bit extreme, but. It really was that that bad. It affected me uh, very, very badly for, for a number of weeks. And I was only able to get through it, frankly, thanks to the incredible outpouring of solidarity from comrades up and down the country. It was truly, truly heartwarming, I've got to say. And I was moved to tears by more than one, more than a few occasions by some of the wonderfully kind, beautiful, you know, heartfelt uh, solidarity and love, actually, I've got to say. Uh, that was uh, directed towards me, and that, that really did help me get get through it. But I mean, obviously, you were reinstated, uh, Afer. I mean, uh, yeah. I, I think you've I think you've resigned from the Labour Party, have you? Now, I mean, just tell me about that. I mean, what, what's your position now in regards to the party and going forward? Yes, well, I must first of all say that I, I, I I'm genuinely grateful for the left legal fine to uh, who took my case on um, and helped me reach some sort of resolution with this um, and um, and also I, I agree with you um, in full solidarity with what you've just said um, if it hadn't for my family and all those wonderful comrades around me I, I would not have survived to be honest with you I know it sounds really dramatic to say that but it really did impact on me mm. in a terrible way um, mm. And it felt it felt as if I had been uh, somehow, um, you know, abused without having done anything. And yeah. and and as I said, I'm still raw. Now, um, just before it was quite interesting when um, we were at the preliminary stage, and my my details were on the court um, papers. I um, I had a, a, a few days before we were due to go to court. Now, how coincidental is that? We, um, I received an email, um, I believe a few of my other colleagues, comrades in the same court action in, in the same way received it, to say that we were, um, we were cleared. And I must read you um, um, what the, the, the new letters that came from the Labour Party said, which actually was the desire for me to resign from the Labour Party after so many years of service. Um, having reviewed the evidence in relation to the allegations against you, we have determined that there are no reasonable grounds to find that your conduct is in breach of the Labour Party rules in respect of this investigation. Um, and that that was an insult to my intelligence, yeah. my integrity, um, and my humanity. It was an absolute insult because there was no apology. There was no um, um, sense that actually they should have reached this decision earlier on, maybe the following day that they sent me the first yeah. because it was a single tweet. Um, and so I felt that I could no longer, in all true faith, campaign for a Labour Party to... Um, become government um, and I could I mean there was a lot of good councillors um, and and uh, parliamentarians that I have a huge and, and and GLA members that I still continue to have huge respect for um, as human beings but no longer politically I could I just couldn't deliver anymore I couldn't door knock anymore I couldn't mm. 
leaflet anymore. I couldn't telephone canvas anymore. And I certainly couldn't go out in the rain and the snow and all those downpours that you have when you're campaigning. Yeah. And talk, look the electorate in the face and say, trust the Labour Party. I just couldn't. Mm. I couldn't. Um, yeah, and all I it was, a, was an apology. That's all it needed. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what I was uh, searching for as well. And of course, rather than getting an apology, I got a, a third suspension just to so I kind of win the High Court uh, case against the party. But they, 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 they imposed a further suspension. It's absolutely disgraceful behaviour. And the irony is, of course, they're cutting off their nose to spite the face, although we know that they were determined, a, a section anyway, to prevent a, a Corbyn-led Labour government coming to power with its socialist uh, agenda at home and its anti-imperialist programme uh, in terms of its foreign policy. And that, I think, was particularly unconscionable to a number of vested interests. And... Uh, the thing is, though, that the, the people that have been targeted are, are, you know, the party's best activists, actually. I mean, I, you know, I like you, absolutely, every kind of spare moment was devoted yeah. to the Labour Party, pushing out leaflets or, or writing articles or, uh, you know, going on social media, speaking at meetings. I mean, that was my life, you know. I mean, I used to often compare myself to Nelson Mandela, but, you know, when he said, you know, the struggle is my life, that was me and the Labour Party. And then to be dealt the blow that I was dealt, and I, I can see that, you know, you feel the same. And I think in many ways we're very similar, Afer, in terms of the commitment that we gave to the Labour Party. It really does feel like a real huge kick in the teeth. Um, it's, it's just truly horrible, despicable. And of course, we know that, you know, we're not the only ones that has been affected by this. Many people have been targeted, as I pointed out on this programme on a number of occasions. Many of them are themselves Jewish, accused, falsely accused of anti-Semitism. And ironically, uh, much many of the accusations against me that were used to justify the suspension of myself was because I'd had the temerity to defend people who were falsely accused, defend anti-Zionist Jewish comrades who'd been falsely accused. People like Jackie Walker, Cyril Chilson, whose parents survived Auschwitz, was accused and expelled from the Labour Party, actually, accused of anti-Semitism, and expelled from the Labour Party. People like Tony Greenstein, who's the son of a rabbi whose father... Is a vet was a veteran of the uh, Cable Street uh, battle uh, against uh, Oswald Mosley's fascists, you know. And there are many, many examples like that. And uh, it's a it's a it's a really horrible, despicable uh, chapter, I think, in in the in the Labour Party's history. And uh, I don't know what the historians will make of it, but I'm sure they'll be shocked and ashamed of it. But let me bring Gamal back in, and I'd like I'll be interested in your views on this. Uh, I know, Afer, you've got a council meeting, so you may need to shoot off. Do you need? Can I just... Hang on, just... Yes, go on, Aoife, go on. Can I just, just say one thing? Um, um, it's interesting what you said, and, and um, I understand all that, and I sympathise absolutely um, with that. But um, no, I don't think anyone is safe. Um, and anyone of your lead, um, listeners listening or watching this, I don't think... Uh, we can't love the whole sense of security, thinking that, you know, if we do the right thing, say the right words, we're actually safe because you're not every human being on this planet make mistakes and um and they're allowed to make those mistakes they're allowed to ask questions and i will defend an individual's right to ask questions until the day i die um mm. so but people will make mistakes and i i don't think people realize that anyone can be caught up in this anyone mm. So please, please um, um, support the fight. But thank you very much for your um, solidarity and your support of my case. It, it meant a lot to me. Thank you. It gave well, us.
Thank you. We're very pleased to support you, Aoife. Aoife, do you need to shoot off to your council meeting now or you do? OK, well, thank you very much, Indy, for taking the time out to uh, to join us this evening. It's a shame you can't wait to uh, hear the reaction from our uh, audience, but uh, we'll perhaps pass on any comments or queries that people might have. They've got anything specifically to you and uh, you can deal with them, uh, you know, in your own time. Then. But thank you for, for joining us this evening, Aoife. I really appreciate that. Um, let me just bring in Amar then now, if I can, uh, just to sort of, uh, carry on the conversation before we bring in our uh, viewers to see what comments and questions they might have. Um, there's been a real, in my opinion, anyway, Amar, I'd just be interested in your take on this. Uh, example of uh, uh, breathtaking double standards, I think, by the Labour Party. We've seen them reinstating uh, uh, Trevor Phillips, who was uh, accused of some pretty, pretty... Uh, uh, strong uh, Islamophobic uh, comments. Um, I think he was reinstated even without having to even go before a panel and right. uh, quietly, well, there was an attempt to quietly reinstate him. Obviously, there's been a bit of a fallout, uh, or certainly on social media anyway, not not in the mainstream media, as it would have been had it been, uh, you know, somebody, well, as we saw when I was reinstated, yeah. we saw what the, you know, the kind of uh, furore that that created. But you know, the Labour Party as well, I mean, just in terms of these double standards, so we've kind of got the situation like, well, like myself, obviously, but then obviously there's these activists that, that we are talking about this evening, AFA that we've just uh, heard from. Uh, then you have, on the other hand, people like Trevor Phillips being reinstated. We then see the, I think, fairly blatant Islamophobia that was deployed by the Labour Party in the Batley and Spen by-election. That was my take on it anyway. I'd, I'd just be interested in your thoughts about those double standards. And really, I mean, I, am I going over the top when I say that the party was engaged, indulging in a degree of uh, Islamophobia in their uh, in their Batley and Spen uh, uh, by-election campaign? Uh, well, I think to say that they were engaging in a degree of Islamophobia would be an understatement, not an overstatement. Um, right. I mean, yes, I mean, this, I mean, this case has obviously shone a spotlight you know, I think on the party's egregious hypocrisy in its response to um, anti-racism. You know, we already know that it's been a long-standing thing, but I think you know it's a duplicity that has really become—I uh, mean, I think the right word is brazen. You know, over the last few weeks, as you say, since the Batley and Spen by-election, in which I think Islamophobia was an absolute centerpiece. Uh, just to quickly return to this case, and then to, and then to uh, deal with this issue about Trevor Phillips and then whatnot. Um, you know, in this case, we saw. Uh, or, or sorry, beforehand, you know, we'd seen in October Keir Starmer publicly claiming to support all of the EHRC's recommendations, you know, um, saying that it will, it will, as, as I said before, you know, implement them in full and without qualification. But then the party is saying in court that it's basically only going to comply with the strictest, narrowest legal obligations in that report, you know, we heard that they were going to implement a brand new independent disciplinary system, but now they're saying they're only really just going to introduce an air of independence to that existing process on a timescale of its own choosing. You know, they sacked Rebecca Long Bailey, they withdrew the whip from Jeremy Corbyn. AFI was making the point that no one's safe. I mean, that they those high profile cases should show people, particularly on the Labour yeah. left, that no one is safe. It doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't even matter if they're the former leader of the Labour Party. You know, they've suspended dozens of party activists over the most minor of allegations uh, and, you know, with manufactured outrage. And then we have the party leadership uh, stoking Islamophobia, as you say, promoting uh, anti-Palestinian racism and elevating pro-Israel campaigners. And, you know, that was obviously signalled with a foghorn. You know, forget about a dog whistle with the reinstatement of the new Labour darling, Trevor Phillips. But, you know, Phillips isn't the only 
um, as, as I said in a, in, in a piece elsewhere, it's not the only Blairite ghoul to have been resurrected from the shadowy depths. You know, we saw Peter Mandelson, uh, who was, of course, part of that Islamophobic New Labour regime. And let's not forget as well, it was New Labour that really introduced modern Islamophobia into the UK, whether it was yeah. through the securitization, the criminalization of Muslim communities, these uh, wars against Muslim majority countries in West Asia, through uh, promoting uh, US State Department talking points uh, on Muslims. And obviously that was uh, crafted by the neoconservative Bush regime. So Mandelson was implicated in all of that. Mandelson mm. is himself, in my view, an Islamophobe. He's then uh, very close personal friends with Trevor Phillips. You know, he was his, um, he was the best man at his first wedding. They've known each other since the student days. They worked together on London Weekend Television. Uh, actually, as well, when Trevor Phillips was the chair of the EHRC and was facing a number of different uh, scandals, um, you know, I think six commissioners resigned under his watch. He was basically accused of having an uh, sort of a intimidating management style. Even back then, you know, Peter Mandelson was intervening to try mm. to get him a peerage so that he could leave the EHRC and go to a sort of a, a, a different job with comparable status in the government. And now I think, you know, obviously it's not been confirmed publicly. I've got nothing to corroborate that. But I think it's highly likely now that we have someone like Peter Mandelson essentially running the Labour Party, that he sorted it out for his mate, Trevor Phillips. He's got him back, as you say, without an independent process, completely flying in the face of everything that Keir Starmer talked about when it came to the EHRC and this independent process and, you know, reforming everything and uh, taking racism seriously. It's, 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 it's more than double standards. It's just total brazen hypocrisy and duplicity. And I think that we, we need to see Labour Party members, you know, if they're serious about their anti-racism, calling that out. We can't have people yeah. sort of uh, walking on eggshells, as, as we've seen plenty of people do you know, in the Labour Party, saying, oh, well, you know, this isn't really proper. And no, we need to have we need to have explicit denunciations of what is happening. This is Islamophobia. And actually, yeah. as well, it's not just sort of coincidental Islamophobia. That would be the charitable way of looking at it, saying, oh, well, you know, it was just the particular circumstances in Battle and Spare. No, well, it's just the fact that Trevor Phillips is sort of personal friends with Peter Mandelson. Yes, those things, you know, have some degree of influence. But actually, I think this is uh, the Starmer regime directly signalling to its sort of middle-class liberal base, FBPE base, that Islamophobia is back. It's okay to hate Muslims again. And someone mm. made the point before, um, I, I forget the forget who, who it was, I don't want to take credit for coining this, but someone said that Jeremy Corbyn was also a victim of Islamophobia. I think that's absolutely true. You know, because of his proximity to Muslims, his the, the fact that he didn't treat them with utter disdain, he wrapped an, an arm around them and you know, said that he cared about their issues. Because of that, he was smeared as a terrorist sympathizer, you know, Britain hating, a threat to national security. That was the reason why he was essentially uh, treated as sort of a, a Muslim would be in political life. But obviously, you know, yeah. he had a certain, not, not quite as, as bad, I think. But, you know, of course, yeah. he, he faced that sort of Islamophobia. And this is Keir Starmer, I think, uh, and the new leadership saying, actually, yeah, that's all off the agenda now. Anti-imperialism has gone. We don't care about Muslims. And, you know, we saw in the aftermath of the Battle and Spin by-election a briefing from a, a Labour source saying that, well, we've created a new electoral coalition. You know, the Muslims abandoned us. Yeah. We created yeah. a new electoral commission without them. Yeah. So so yeah. sod them. Yeah. So they are basically preparing yeah. for a realignment.
yeah. that. I mean, the two things I think you're saying there are more clearly. There's the, uh, the well, I think you know it's, it's, it's brazen, it's disgusting, uh, a political tactic, a political tactic to use Islamophobia for some sort of uh, perverse political gain. And then there's this issue about this kind of double standards, the way the poli thought policing members in relation to uh, anti-Semitism. The overwhelming majority of it is bogus uh, anti-Semitism, not anti-Semitism at all. It's criticism of, uh, of the Zionist uh, regime uh, in Israel. Um, whilst turning a blind eye and actually, you know, putting an arm around people who have indulged in, in pretty egregious uh, uh, Islamophobic uh, tropes. You know, we've heard about uh, Trevor Phillips. You, you know, you either, in my opinion, as a party, you either have a code of conduct which you apply across the board or you say we're a voluntary organization we're not going to police people's thoughts only in the most extreme cases but we have a situation here don't we where yes. the party's using islamophobia as i've said for political gain and turning a blind eye to islamophobia and just being completely over the top in relation to any criticism frankly of israel and, cl and claiming yeah. that's anti-Semitism, weaponized anti-Semitism. I mean, that's just, well, it's just untenable, isn't it? Well, I think, I mean, I mean, there, there are a couple of points there. So firstly, I would say I absolutely agree in terms of how the party really should be approaching issues in relation to speech. I think we should absolutely have a system in which really we aren't policing people's speech in the way that we have at the, at the moment, you know, which uh, we have, I think it was, I may have the number wrong, but I think there are eight dedicated Labour Party staff who just deal with complaints. You think mm -hmm. about their salaries, how much money the party is putting into running yeah. some sort of, uh, you know, pound shop version of the Stasi. They're, they're spending millions of pounds, really, every year to deal just with complaints and policing what members say and do. And then they're not even doing it competently, you know, as, as Ava Orhan uh, very emotively pointed out, she had been under investigation for two years for a single tweet that she put out, which, for, for which later she was completely exonerated. So, I mean, I would absolutely be in favour of ensuring that, you know, free speech is protected. But I think even if there were to be that system, uh, I think people like Trevor Phillips and these other yeah. Islamophobes would be caught up in it. I think yeah. even if we did have that system, they would have to be uh, expelled for uh, egregious Islamophobia. You know, you can't really compare the things that Trevor Phillips has said yeah. with some of these, as you say, these bogus accusations of anti-Semitism, which predominantly relate to criticisms of Israel and of Zionism, which are perfectly legitimate criticisms. We can't, we simply can't compare them. This is why I don't really like putting them in the same breath. People talk yeah. about, well, you know, um, drawing an equivalence between anti-Semitism on the one hand, anti-Semitism allegations and Islamophobia allegations on the other. But then when we look and we investigate the substance of these allegations, more often than not, the anti-Semitism allegations aren't related to anything else other than someone's particular views of Israel and Zionism. Whereas the uh, views about Muslims are dehumanizing, uh, basically yeah. treating them as a fifth column, as a sort of a, a problem. In the same way, I think that you know actual anti-Semitism manifested itself in the 1930s in Germany. So you Indeed. can't compare the two things at all. And you did the anti-Semitism that people like uh, Tony Greenstein's father, who's been expelled, accused of anti-Semitism, actually confronted that type of anti-Semitism that was uh, personified, really, by Oswald Mosley's uh, fascists. Uh, but anyway, let me move uh, now to uh, Sean, if I, if I may, bring Sean in and uh, just get uh, the views of our uh, viewers this evening to tonight's discussion. Sean. 
Hi, um, hi, I hope you're okay. Hi, Sean. Yeah, we've got loads of comments and questions that have come through. People are absolutely flabbergasted by um, Ava's story, um, which is very similar to my story, um, actually. Um, and I completely sympathise with the way she's been treated and um, the way she feels. Um, it, it took me a good two to three years to get over this. I'm still not over it properly. Um, I ended up losing my job as well yeah. because of it. Um, and I also received a letter saying that I was never suspended and that um, uh, the investigation wouldn't take any, they wouldn't take any um, action against me. Um, but I still lost my job and um, the Times, um, what a Labour Party staffer gave my information to the Times to uh, a journalist and he wrote a completely bogus story about me and um, saying that I had been readmitted to the Labour Party after I'd been expelled which was completely untrue um, so I you know I do feel very very bitter about that still um, that there was no action taken against this uh, this member of staff Anyway, let's go to some questions um, and comments. Uh, Call Daddy says, who's going to care about a code of co conduct when Labour does what it wants anyway? There needs to be cases against the Labour Party for its institutional racism against blacks and Muslims. Uh, then he goes on to say that the left never had control of Labour. It was always the PLP who ran the party. Um, Sue English says, why, why would people fight to get back into fake Labour? Have the last few years not taught us just who owns it? And it was never us. Um, Mark Anderson asks, how much are the outstanding legal costs? Um, and I know that um, costs have been incurred and have been awarded to the Labour Party because of this court action and um, hopefully you'll be doing some crowdfunding to try and um, source that funding uh, to help the people who took the Labour Party to court. Do, do Chris or Amar want to tell us a little bit more about that? About the, yeah. Are there any other outstanding costs that we can help with? Yeah, Amar, do you uh, want to take that? Yes, yes. I, yeah, so on Monday, uh, the um, cost hearing took place for the hearing and the judge, um, I think wrongly, um, and uh, the claimants very strongly contested it as well, awarded the Labour Party £110,000 in costs, which obviously is an eye-watering amount that's been awarded to the Labour Party against eight, essentially, ordinary people, you know, who don't, um, who, who, if they are to sort of fork that out themselves, are going to be, I think, left in financial ruin. I mean, anyone any ordinary party member who faced those sort of costs would be. So, yes, there are crowdfunding efforts going on to support them. And I think they would very much welcome anyone who supported them because at the end of the day, you know, if thousands of people took on that burden and uh, demonstrated their solidarity, then actually those costs could be cleared very, very quickly. And the direct impact on individuals, all, all of those people don't, who donated, would be far fewer than it would on those uh, eight eight individuals so you know if we had thousands rather than eight people paying it uh, of course that would be very very helpful so you can find their crowdfunder it's on it's at www.fightingfund.org uh, and it's on a page called defend labor members so it's, it's they're being supported by the left legal fighting fund just repeat that again so it's www.fightingfund.org 
Uh, and as yeah. I say, yeah, hopefully, Gaz will be able to put that up. Yeah, um, put that all on the screen, Gaz. Yeah, if you don't mind. To let people know, mm -hmm. um, that's really important. Um, Tig Tig says uh, the right wing in the Labour uh, in a left wing party is the problem. Right wing running a left wing party into the ground is beyond idiotic. Uh, Jonathan Cooper says they treat members like dirt. Susie English says there are people planted in fake labour to prevent socialist, socialism. No socialists should remain in it. I don't know whether that's true or not, Chris. Um, I don't think people are actually planted in Labour Party to prevent socialism. Um, I just think they have a, a completely different idea to what um, the Labour Party was founded on. I think um, the party's been colonised, uh, Sean, if I'm honest. I mean... Uh... You know, Tony Benn used to talk about the party needs two wings to fly, a left wing and a right wing. And I think in those days there was a degree of respect for each, for each, if you like, wing of the party. But uh, the advent of Kinnock and then Tony Blair, and again, to quote Tony Benn, he talks about the new Labour cuckoos were trying to take over the Labour Party. Mm -hmm. And as I've said on this programme before, they, they've not just, you know, attempting it, they've absolutely taken it over, smashed all the eggs and destroyed the nest. And uh, so we do have people who are, who are not, really in keeping with i think the labor party's values certainly not in keeping with the the uh you know the values that were espoused by the likes of keir hardy when the party was established i've got a poster in my uh, office uh with uh, extract of keir hardy's uh, one of keir hardy's speeches where you know he's talking about the, you know the the capitalist uh, class and standing up for the for the working class i mean and these are things that you never hear fall from the lips of labor parliamentarians anymore and uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think uh, we've seen a situation where the party has been taken over. And I spoke at Jeremy Corbyn's first uh, first uh, campaign rally when he was subjected to the coup um, at Conway Hall. And I referenced an article that I'd written that had been published in the Morning Star, I think, the week before, where I'd compared the people, the parliamentarians behind the coup as Linton Crosby's sleepers who'd been put into the Labour Party 30, 20, 10 years previous to cause the maximum disruption at this very moment when the Tories were in disarray, when there was a potential of an early election, and there was at that time, this was just after the uh, referendum, let's uh, remember, and we had a socialist as the leader of the party. And I made the point that, frankly, had Linton Crosby done that, I mean, they couldn't have done a better job. The, you know, these people, whether they are sleepers or, you know, fifth columnists or not, but they, they are certainly not in keeping with Labour Party traditions, Labour Party values. There's certainly, and maybe I was looking at the Labour Party through rose-tinted spectacles when I joined the Labour Party for many years, but I was always, you know, very proud, I think, of the Labour Party's sort of tradition for standing up for the underdog, for, you know, for fighting injustice and for fighting for decency and ethical foreign policy. But in reality, you know, I mean, we've had people at the very most senior levels of the party who have who've gone absolutely against that. I mean, particularly people like like Blair, Brown to some extent, even Wilson, you know, uh, although he wasn't nowhere near as bad as um, we're near as bad as, as Blair. But even Wilson, I think, could and indeed should have done more in relation to uh, Britain's response to the Vietnam War. But then also, you know, some of our interventions around the world during those Labour governments and indeed certainly you know that 1945 which everybody holds up as a, as a wonderful example of, of socialist uh, progress it's foreign policy that 45 for 51 Labour government was it was appalling and let's remember as well it was that government that, that that gave us the atomic bomb 
um, you know, without even consulting the, uh, the the Labour cabinet at the time. So, yeah, I mean, um, I, I certainly think that it's got worse. It, it's always been a vehicle, I think. Of, uh, it's always been a tool of the establishment, in my opinion. Um, but it's got considerably worse now. And I think we really essentially have got uh, two establishment parties in the same way that they have in the United States now. They're two, two sides of the same coin. But Amar, we, what, what's your thoughts about that? Um, well, I mean, regrettably, I think I have to agree to a large extent. I mean, I was a member of the Labour Party for six years. I joined uh, much longer, well, sorry, much uh, less time than, than you, Chris. But, uh, you know, as a member of the Labour Party since the 8th of May 2015, I joined because I thought, you know, I wasn't particularly enamoured with uh, sort of uh, the state that the Labour Party was in under Ed Miliband, but I thought, look, it represented a genuine alternative to the Tories and that we could build something out of it and that we could get rid of the Tories. But then, you know, my experience over those six years, and particularly under Keir Starmer, I just sort of saw that really uh, this party, firstly, isn't democratic, can't be reformed from within. And actually, many of the people in prominent positions have absolutely no interest in making any sort of material change. And so um, that, in combination with sort of the anti you know, overtly anti-socialist politics, the attacks on, uh, you know, supporters of Palestinian liberation and the Islamophobia in the party, I resigned on the 8th of May 2021. So exactly six years after I joined, because I couldn't stand it any longer. And I thought, as you say, it's, it's basically two sides of the same coin. And that's really regrettable because, you know, I think there was really an opportunity, particularly in 2017, to mm. have not just... Um, reform the Labour Party and to change its processes and to sort of make it a genuinely democratic party with people in there who represent the views of the members. But it could have actually got into government and it could have done some great things for this country. But now I don't think that sort of position is ever going to come about again. Of course, there are some people who think that actually, yes, uh, there's a left leader waiting in the wings uh, with the name of Angela Rayner, who of course isn't left wing at all, and that somehow the socialist campaign group of the Labour Party, which have proven themselves to be absolutely wet and useless time and time again, are somehow going to rise from the ashes and uh, deliver something better than what came before. I think actually, no, Corbynism was the compromise, as some people have said, it was the final sort of um, end in the Labour Party for the left. And now that that's been exhausted, uh, not only are they never going to allow that to happen to, again, and by they, I don't mean some sort of shadowy conspiracy. I mean, the people who are in the Labour Party and who run it are never going to allow that to happen again. Um, right. I don't think that there's a possibility that the Labour Party under any leader, whether it be Keir Starmer, Andy Burnham, or whoever, actually coming into government and making genuine change. So the question is then, what is the alternative? And you know, it's certainly not the Labour Party. No. Exactly. Totally agree with you. I think we've got time for just one more question. Yeah, probably. Yeah. So from Cool uh, Daddy Cool says, is there a chance that the left legal fighting fund or courts could get the IHRA made illegal, given it only helps Israel? I think that's one for you, Amar, with your legal um, expertise. I, I think I think if there was some way of making the IHRA definition illegal, I think it would have been explored already. And I think that there would already be substantial legal action being taken against it. I don't think that's really possible. I think whenever legal action is taken, I think it needs to be strategic. So whenever legal action is taken by people on the left, because you know we don't have masses of resources like the right do, who can go to their millionaire and billionaire friends to you know, bankroll them uh, and, and take on, you know, million pound trials. We can't do that. We have to be you know, strategic in the issues that we want to put before a court. I don't think that can necessarily happen, but I think that 
you know, politically, there is a huge uh, battle to be fought, not just in terms of the IHRA definition, but any sort of uh, attempt to conflate criticism of the state of Israel and Zionism with Israel. This is a, uh, sorry, with anti-Semitism. This is essentially a uh, diplomatic strategy being pursued by the state of Israel and also, you know, separately by the, the Zionist movement to uh, conflate the two issues and what they want to do, and the end goal, and they've already managed to achieve that to a large extent in France and Germany, is to criminalise anti-Zionism in law in Britain. That's what they want to do. That's the end goal. We haven't quite got there yet. So I think, yes, we need to expose that political uh, strategy that's going on. We need to fight against it uh, politically at every opportunity and raise people's awareness about, you know, what the, what the end game is for these individuals. Uh, that they're not, they don't care about Judeophobia and anti-Jewish prejudice. They're basically pursuing a cynical tactic to uh, support the settler colonial racist state that they so love. And, you know, it is, is uh, uh, you know, brutalizing the Palestinian people. Um, and of course, if there are moves to enshrine it in law, we need to ensure that uh, every single, you know, resources deployed to tackle that, be it lobbying politicians, uh, be it, you know, um, th through public campaigns. So, yes, we need to ensure that there is awareness about what the IHRA is, and also not just the IHRA, but, you know, people have been talking about this, you know, Jerusalem Declaration and saying, oh, isn't this such a wonderful alternative to the IHRA? I think in many ways it's worse than the IHRA. Mm -hmm. Again, it's another definition of anti-Semitism that is talking about Israel and Zionism, why do we have definitions of anti-Semitism that are talking about Israel and Zionism? They're not relevant. And that, mm. that needs to be the, the line that's continuously taken and put forward again and again. Yeah. Well, listen, thanks very much indeed, uh, Amar, for your insights tonight. They've been Thank absolutely uh, excellent. Thank you very much for that. And just give us one more time that, uh, that website uh, for people if they want to make a donation to yes, the Fighting Fund. Yes, it's www.fightingfund.org. I see it's on the screen there. So ah, great. It's on the screen. I can't see without my glasses properly. Yeah. Nice one. Well, thank you very much indeed again, Amara. Thank you as well to uh, Afa Orhan for her insights. And uh, thank you, everybody, for watching this evening. We'll be back again next week at the same time, 7 p.m. Look forward to seeing you then. Thanks for watching and good night.